everyone, thank you all for joining. Today we have the great honor and privilege of having Ms. Gina Horan with us. Gina has lived unconventionally for a living. She wisely achieved a degree in philosophy to complement her fine arts major. She has worked independently her entire life. She married a musician and together they called the West Coast home while they toured the majority of the US. She has a support dog named Pickle who has a support dog named Purple. In 2019, lung cancer came into her life shortly after turning 46. Like life, she approached she approached um, this creatively and independently. She lived she has lived cancer free since 2020, having escaped death and hospice solely by using her mind and immunotherapy. She'll be sharing her story with us today. Thank you, Gina, for taking the time um, to be here with us and your willingness to share your story. Thank you for actually using that bio. <laughs> right off the top of my head with that one. <laughs> so before we continue, we want to launch a quick poll to get a feel of the audience we have today. We have just two questions that ask how much you know about lung cancer and lung cancer screening. So if everyone could just take a couple of seconds to fill this poll out, that would be wonderful. Can you add a question to it? Um, I, I'm not sure if I can add a question, but maybe we can do like a raise hand feature. But is there a question that you'd like to add, Gina? I wanted to know how many people thought that I would have passed the lung cancer screening. Oh, yeah, that's a great question. So um, if if people want to raise their hand um, and to guess whether or not Gina would have um, passed the lung cancer screening eligibility criteria, um, that would be wonderful. As a 30-year smoker. As a 30-year smoker, yes. I'm giving, I'm giving them help. <laughs> All right, it looks like we have a majority of responses in, so I'll go ahead and close the poll and share the results. So it seems like the majority of people have know a little bit about lung cancer and lung cancer screening, and there's some people who know more about both topics. So that's, that's wonderful to hear that at least people have heard about both lung cancer and lung cancer screening. And we really hope that through this podcast and um, through Gina's experience, we'll be able to learn about both these topics more. And regarding um, your question, Gina, I don't see anyone raising their hands. Maybe maybe it was a leading question. <laughs> so they figured that you weren't eligible for screening, but. Um, I did not, I still don't qualify actually. I'm too young. <laughs> right. And that's actually well, something. I oh, oh, sorry. sorry. I, um, I was, I was going to say that um, that's actually something that we will talk about um, very shortly. Um, we have a, just a short presentation with a couple of slides. And one of the things that we cover is this lung cancer screening guidelines. And so um, we'll see there that individuals have to be at least 50 years old in order to um, be eligible for screening, in addition to having a um, a 20 pack year smoking history. So. Okay. <laughs> okay. 
Well, thank you all for filling out um, the poll. Just to introduce myself and my team, my name is Priyanka Santo, and with me I have Drake Long and Vasu Patel, and we are part of the American Lung Cancer Screening Initiative, or ALSI for short. And for those who might not be familiar with our organization, um, we have a couple of slides to share about who we are. So ALSI is a 501c3 nonprofit that works to raise awareness for lung cancer and lung cancer screening. We're a team of over 200 students and doctors located across the United States. And we do the work that we do because lung cancer is the deadliest cancer in the world, causing more deaths than breast, prostate, and colon cancers combined. Lung cancer causes about 380 deaths per day in the U.S. alone. Lung cancer is very fatal because currently many patients are being diagnosed at a late stage when the cancer has grown and spread to other parts of the body. Lung cancer screening is an effective imaging technique that can be used to screen for lung cancer and has been shown to catch lung cancers early. However, less than 6% of people at high risk for lung cancer are currently getting screened. The screening rate for lung cancer is much lower than the screening rates for breast, cervical, and colon cancers which are about 70%. We believe that educating people about lung cancer and lung cancer screening is one of the most important and effective ways to increase this lung cancer screening rate for populations that would benefit from lung cancer screening. So far, we've given over 140 presentations on lung cancer and lung cancer screening to universities, hospitals, medical schools, and organizations around the US, as well as India, Canada, Brazil, and Mexico, reaching over 10,000 people. Over the last year, we've worked with 125 mayors from every single U.S. state to issue proclamations recognizing November as National Lung Cancer Awareness Month. We've also had the opportunity to work with several leaders at the state level, including Arizona State Senator Leo Alston, who's a lung cancer survivor, Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf, and Lieutenant Governor of Colorado, Diane Primavera, to increase awareness of lung cancer screening. In addition to our education, outreach, and advocacy efforts, we recently started a podcast series to share the personal side of lung cancer and provide a platform for lung cancer survivors and advocates to share their stories. Elsie um, has also worked with U.S. Um, Congress members and senators to draft and advocate for the first ever House and Senate resolutions recognizing the importance of the early detection of lung cancer through screening. And in December 2020, the Senate resolution was passed with unanimous consent marking the first time the U.S. Senate has ever recognized the importance of screening. ALSI has also actively been working with Representative Brennan Boyle and Senator Tina Smith to draft and advocate for Catherine's Law for Lung Cancer Early Detection and Survival Act of 2021. And lastly, we want to end by talking a little bit about lung cancer screening. Lung cancer screening is done using something called a low-dose computed tomography scan. And this scan uses low radiation doses, is pain-free, and takes less than five minutes to complete. The United States Preventive Services Task Force, also known as the USPSTF, sets guidelines for who should be screened for lung cancer. Right now, they recommend that people between the ages of 50 and 80, who have a 20-pack year smoking history or more, and who are current or former smokers, who could, who could in the past two annual low-dose CT scans. One pack year is defined as smoking on average one pack a day for one year. Therefore, 20 pack years can be met by smoking one pack a day for 20 years or smoking two packs a day for 10 years, for example. 
If you know anyone who might be eligible for lung cancer screening based on the criteria listed on the previous slide, please share the link given by the QR code so that they can contact one of our doctors about lung cancer screening. And finally, we want to highlight that there are other risk factors for lung cancer in addition to smoking, such as exposure to asbestos, a family history of lung cancer, COPD, and previous radiation therapy to the lungs. We believe it is important that we recognize these additional risk factors because a large number of people in the United States who have never smoked still get lung cancer. So thank you everyone for taking the time to listen to that quick presentation. And without further ado, we'll jump right into the podcast. We have a few questions prepared for Gina, but we also have a Q&A session at the end where you all can submit any questions you have for her. And this podcast is being recorded and will be shared on our Spotify, Anchor, Google and Apple podcasts, as well as our YouTube channel. So first off, Gina, um, could you please introduce yourself and share your background? Um. <laughs> like the quill. Uh, I am Gina. I am now 49. My background is I am a freelance artist. And right now, uh, I'm a lung cancer advocate and dog mother. Yes. <laughs> and I don't know. I, awkward silences i will try to fill them every time so just just start talking (laughs) that's perfect thanks gina um can you talk a little bit about your lung cancer journey whatever you feel comfortable sharing um a little bit about it um i was diagnosed february 15th 2019 and June of the year was the first time I was told I had a month. In the next three months, I'd be told three months, three years, three days, two months, two weeks, in various order. Um, I had added adenocarcinoma poorly differentiated. I had a large tumor in the apex of my right lung that grew to the right bronchi and was growing through my right bronchi to the point where it grew over my trachea and put me into what they call a hypercapnic state, which is when you cannot get enough oxygen in or out. And I ended up in the ICU for a month. That was the short version. <laughs> well, it didn't have an ending. And then I lived. But, um, <laughs> yeah, that sounds uh, great. Oh, sorry. It sounds great. <laughs> and it sounds like I, it, was, it was great, that part of living. What you yeah, got? Hit me. What do you got? I, I can't believe how scary it is to hear your diagnosis of your estimated time left change um, back and forth. But what was it like to receive your diagnosis and what was going through your mind at that time? I didn't actually receive my diagnosis. And you're going to note that throughout this interview is that nothing happened correctly. I did not have a kind, caring doctor sit me down and say, you have lung cancer. Uh, my doctor told my husband over the phone and I I just found that out recently 
but she told me uh, in order to not scare me, she told me I had what she thought could be a cloud of pneumonia. So that was all I knew. And that was on February 15th. And I would not go into another hospital or see another doctor until June 5th. Oh, you're like, you're doing the math. You're like, <laughs> Hi, Gina. Uh, in what ways did your life change after being diagnosed with lung cancer? I started dying very quickly. So that changed my life and that my life became very geared towards death. But on the other hand, um, useful information is that I very, very quickly learned that the medical system is very much broken in almost every area. And so you kids need to write down that you've got a lot of work to do because every area of medicine is messed up. Like you don't think it is, but it is. <laughs> and that's part of it being a, a for-profit sort of business. But what you guys are doing is great. and keep doing it because people are going to need you. Thank you. Really, really appreciate it. So following your diagnosis, um, what kind of treatment options did you have? Uh, I was offered one treatment option for a low back to me, which I realized would have killed me a lot quicker than the cancer. So I didn't do it. Um, and other than that, they offered nothing, no hope. So I tried alternative methods at home. If you feel comfortable, um, could you share a little bit more about what those alternative methods were? Uh, I did uh, cannabis oil for, how long did we do that last? Two months? A little over two months. It's called Rick Simpson oil or Phoenix Tears. There's different names for it, but it's a high, high THC. It's done more in other countries, like you're sort of sneaking it in from Canada. And um, you do it, you have to build up orally, but in suppositories, you go a lot quicker. And the idea is that it would deplete the blood flow to the tumors. Isn't that the main goal? We have no way of knowing that it ever did anything. <laughs> I don't know if it did anything. I'm just saying, think of what it was supposed to do well we know it didn't actually cure anything but we debate that treatment itself because it held me at 3a which i was diagnosed at february 15th until i was in the hospital in june so it didn't progress after i stopped it in june then i very quickly progress. A question um, kind of going back to your time of diagnosis. Um, how was the process of scheduling a CT scan and actually getting it? Did you feel that your provider was um, receptive to it or um, their thoughts? She had to do it because I failed a test called the D-dimer because I I had an entire visit with her where she said everything looks fine, feels fine, seems fine, but I hate doctors. And 
there's any out there listening hey guys um so since i was there she's like how about you let me do a blood test i was like fine because i don't want to be worrying about this all winter so she did a blood test and everything was okay with it but she snuck a test on there called the d-dimer which is a blood clotting test and i failed it hardcore which made her think i had a pulmonary embolism so actually i went in for an emergency ct that same day otherwise if i hadn't done that or done the labs i just would have gone home and gone about four or five weeks before but is something was quite not right uh what was it like to have your husband as your caregiver and what was like the experience for him and you it sucked well to put him in that position like he <laughs> he had to stop his work and his life had to all of a sudden be about you know my bedpan because i very quickly lost the ability to walk he was my legs he did he carried me everywhere for 6 months and the amount of pressure on him to keep me alive and four months after i was diagnosed his mother was diagnosed so he was dealing with things and but his life had to be about me so no it it was not awesome it was something that is something i regret but he saved my life which he sometimes he regrets but um we were in a position insurance doesn't keep up with you they don't say oh you're dying real fast we'll do things real fast so we had to do what we had to do to keep me alive throughout this entire story the story life like 2019 <laughs> if that makes sense yeah it is really amazing to have someone by your side and especially when uh, your husband was taking care of you like always especially since i don't even cook i mean he could have traded up so <laughs> i'm saying <laughs> i kid but the point is another side of that was that it was good that he was my caretaker because he knew me well enough to on days when i said i don't want to go to this appointment for the first time in our lives you could just pick me up and carry me going i i don't care that you don't want to which you might realize is not that easy now that i've got legs again so i think, I think maybe we should clarify a bit of the timeline um because i don't know how much i don't i don't think a lot of the story was already given at the beginning um the the genus story can kind of be uh punctuated by her stay in the ICU which was for a, a, about 3 and 1/2 weeks and in this story um she was diagnosed as she said on on February 15th of 2019 um and then everything that we've been talking about thus far has been up until her stay in the ICU which was when we were kind of you know on our own trying things with the cannabis oil and just you know trying to keep her 
alive and keep her comfortable and hoping against hope and, and after she had turned down the thoracic surgery. Um, she did not get referred to an oncologist because the buck stopped with the thoracic surgeon. Her primary care physician referred her to, to a thoracic surgeon, but once she declined thoracic surgery, they would not refer her to an oncologist. So that was a big disconnect with the medical system. So things got worse and worse and worse. And finally, we went out and got in touch with an oncologist on our own, uh, out of network. And from there, she started getting care, if you will. Then she started a brief round of chemo. Um, that, oh, I should say that's when she first got her biopsy. That's when she first got a, a little bit of chemo, which ultimately was ineffective. Um, and then from there, she deteriorated further until one day I had to break every traffic law, get her to the, the ER, admit her. And that's when she was completely hypoxic. And that's when we ended up in the ER for three and a half weeks. And that's when she had every kind of procedure you can imagine within the span of those three and a half weeks. And from there, she left the ER, she left the ICU rather on hospice. Everyone had given up hope. And that's when I had to take over as her caregiver again. Uh, I, I had the nurses teach me how to uh, change her IV fluids. I had the nurses teach me how to take care of her in all the ways that a, a, a hospice nurse would have to take care of her. And I think that's a misnomer that we were going home on hospice and someone was there waiting. We went home on hospice and it was him. Yeah, and so, so I, I had a little bit to do with things before her stay. Then she was handed over to the medical system. They did everything they could do. And then I kind of so, had to come back on board again later. I so I, I guess I just wanted to... I would have her cue like, that video now of me in the ICU of what you were taking home. Because that video was taken about 15 hours before it would be just him taking care of me. She's on it. <laughs> yes, I, I have it pulled up and I can share it. But um, first of all, thank you for the timeline. That, that really helped um, to give us perspective of like where exactly we're talking about. So that's helpful. But um, I'll, I'll play the video. Uh, oh, not all six I'll... minutes. I mean, they can just get a general idea from 20, 30 seconds. Sure. No sound. Good Lord. Do you want me to explain what's happening? Yeah, that would be wonderful, Gina. If, if you could 
talk about like what's happening, what was going through your mind, um, like you know, receiving receiving this care um, at the hospital. Yeah, in the in the video, I'll, I'll say that's what getting down what it's called suction, where they stick a small brush down the tube of a trach and they scratch at your throat and it makes you cough. And the idea is they pull up uh, the secretions from, from your lungs. I received a lot of radiation and whatnot. And as you can see with, with the trach, you, you don't have any air passed here because mine, mine was cuffed because, uh, what? Oh, mine was cuffed because, uh, my doctor didn't like it when I talked. It's a personal thing between him and I, and I got pneumonia, and that that's why I was a little sicker there than I had been, uh, because having a cough trach makes you a lot more susceptible to sort of staph pneumonia, which I did get. Um, but yeah, that's my husband took this video trying to figure out what he was gonna to have to do the next day, which was to suction my trach and clean the trach. And a lot of things with this hole in your neck that he was going to have to take care of and make sure it didn't get infected because that uh, wouldn't have lived too long with an infection. But pointing out his special point and him being a caregiver is that I called, I, I didn't call because I couldn't pick up the phone or talk um got him to get me hospice so that I could get home because I heard every every morning my doctor would come in and explain why I was dying because he liked to bother me and annoy me and he thought it was funny but um one day I actually paid attention to the speech and he said that Jean is going to die because she's going to drown by the fluids that are keeping her alive, they're going to drown. It's going to shut down her kidneys and all her organs, and she's drowned to death. Isn't that interesting? He said, and the student asked why, and he said, well, because she's starving to death. And I had had a peg tube put in because I had a surgery uh, July 30th, which was like a week before this. And they put in the peg tube to feed me, and they weren't using it. And so, I thought I need to get home and I need to eat. And I'll back up further that there was a day in the ICU that a girl came in and she, she gave a speech about Kay Truda. And I was on a lot of drugs then. So what she said to me was, I heard her say, if you take Kay Truda, it will cure you. And I'm like, that's cool, I'll do that. So in my head was always, I need to get out of here and get back to the hospital to my doctor and get this k Truda. and so in order to do that i need to eat so on my whiteboard i was writing to my husband every day home hills my doctor k Truda. so there was a lot of people that thought i was giving up when i called hospice but i, I say very often i'm probably one of the few people that called hospice because i wanted to live the hospital was going to kill me. I didn't believe her, for the record. I really thought she was giving <laughs> up and we were going home and I was despondent and her whole family thought this was it. She just doesn't want to pass away in the hospital. And we, she had demanded to get off hospice a week later, went to see her old oncologist, demanded to get on Keytruda, and then a month later she was 
it was crazy. So anyway. So, and because I know one of the questions you ask is, is what do you, what did you learn? And I learned that at my sickest, people made fun of me. There was names, different radiation techs would call me and stuff, and they would drop me and say, oops. And even in the ambulance on the way home, my oxygen ran out. And the guy asked the other guy, he said, should we stop? And he said, no, we're just helping God. So I want you kids to know that it's not a Hallmark movie out there. There are people that have shitty attitudes and they're taking care of people that are really sick and they're not being nice to them. And it's something now that COVID's over, I'm getting my file and I'm going back and I'm finding those people because sometimes we don't die. And that was sort of a stigma. It's like, as a lung cancer girl, we can screw with her. And they just, um, they screwed with the wrong lung cancer girl. Wow, it's, it's really difficult to hear um, your story and your experience um, in the hospital. And just hearing that, you know, it seemed like everyone else had lost hope. So what strategies did you use to get through those particularly difficult times um, during your journey? Anger, uh, a belief that I was smarter than my doctor, which I was because starving, food, medical school. Um, so I never doubted that I could live. I never doubted that I could beat this. And like, I was shocked going to, to my first follow-up scan when I, I asked my husband, I said, do you think the K-Treat has already cured me? He's like, that's not how it works. I'm like, yes, it is. And everybody's sort of like, oh no, again, Gina's in her fantasy world. But by that first scan, I was it was 95% gone. So I was just a little off. Can I jump in? Yeah. Jump away. Again, with clarifying just the timeline. The the ICU visit, when it, it, it could be hard to believe that she could talk like this about the doctor. Um, and, and yet, obviously something positive happened while we were there. And, and it, both are true. Um, the while she was there, the first 10 days of her stay, she was in a coma. And I was dealing with some amazing doctors, some questionable doctors as well, but largely the people who saved her life, she never met. The A-team who came <laughs> in and did all this amazing work to clear her airway and to get her, you know, a, a well enough to be in the video you saw, it, it, she never met them. She only knows their names, but they were, those were some amazing, amazing professional doctors. But then there, there are rotations and you, ne you never know who's going to come in next. So Seven we built days. these relationships with these amazing doctors who did so much to save her. And then just like that rotation and you don't know, then the B team comes in and they're still thinking about something else. They don't want to take the time to get to know her. They might not even realize how far she's come. The care quality changed instantly. And then another rotation happened. And by this time, that's when she got the doctor that she actually remembers, the awful one, the one that was, my God, if I, if I could say with any 
certainty, I would say he was actually trying to end her life. But yeah, so there there is a disparity. Just because you go to a, you know, there's one institution, the hospital, but there are three rotations and there was an amazing set of doctors, a sort of middle ground set of doctors, and then what we got that she left with with that as her final impression. Well, I also had the, the rare opportunity to actually turn stage four in the ICU because when I had the, the surgery, I mean, I I was in the coma for 10 days, like you said, and then I was awake for three days and they said, unless you have this surgery because your bowel is impacted, you're gonna die in three days. I'm like, well, this really friggin' sucks. People won't leave me alone. And so I had agreed to the surgery and <clears throat> two days later they said it was cancerous. So they erased my entire treatment plan in front of me. So that stuff happens. Like they didn't think anything of it. There was a whiteboard with all my radiation dates and everything in front of me. And a nurse came in and she's like, oh, you're, you're stage four. You're not gonna do this now. You can have three baby doses of radiation, but that's it for you. So, I mean, that explains a little bit of my attitude, but it, I had to be like that. If I would have showed weakness, I wouldn't be here. And that's why I became a lung cancer advocate because I know not everybody has the ability to do that, especially, I mean, there still are a lot of older people that get diagnosed and they write to me and I tell them what to do. And I've, I've heard more horror stories. I mean, I've seen like the things that insurance does in specific will turn your stomach. Like there was a man that wrote me because he couldn't get approved for K-Truda and he wanted to know why. And I had him send me his file. And they said he wasn't eligible because he was he wasn't PDL1 positive. But they his lung collapsed when they did the biopsy. So there was no biopsy. He wasn't PDL1 positive or negative. So they turned him down like that. It's just stuff like that that you have to be on top of. And just a matter of having his doctor who never looked at this call and get him improved. So it's, there is some shenanigans going on out there. I'll say that. <laughs> Questions? I can't imagine how vulnerable you felt during this time when someone basically had um, your life in their hands. Um, but I know you touched on this briefly, but what motivates you to share your lung cancer story, you know, in these particularly dark times um, publicly through your social media? I don't want it to happen to someone else. As I said, someone like, frankly, I'm an asshole. So I was able to deal with it better. And the other people that are nice, like, I, I talked to you before about my mother and, and her and watching her and people her age that are like, I'm gonna listen to the doctor, I'm gonna do what the doctor says. No. So, so I now just tell people information and I don't, I decided I needed to do something or something decided it needed me to do it. I'm not, I'm not quite sure how that worked out, but I've seen too much just like, go back and watch some TV and chillax. Uh, th there's just too much that, that's wrong. 
And I think that treating people like stage four patients killed a lot more patients than needed to die. I mean, I proved that as soon as I left and three months later, I was fine. And the reason I would have died if I listened to the doctor is because I starved to death in a first world, really nice hospital. That doesn't make sense. Because every day I'd hear him outside my door. Is she dead yet? No. Well, so these things happen and they're not gonna happen to somebody else if I can help it. <laughs> uh, you did talk previously about the current challenges in today's like medical, like healthcare. What are the other challenges uh, that the lung cancer community faces? Uh, I think there's a lot more lung cancer coming from global causes, from fires, uh, from people that think vaping B12 is a smart thing to do, or vaping in general. Uh, there's just, well, you guys probably know that non-smoking lung cancer is the biggest growing segment of cancer. so. More is coming, but on the, on the good side, sorry, you heard my dog bark. Um, more people are reacting to immunotherapy. I mean, that's the one thing, like lung cancer has been like the scourge of cancer for so long, but we're kicking ass with immunotherapy. We're the number one reactive cancer to immunotherapy. So therefore we win. But precision oncology, it is incredible how few medical professionals are, have any awareness of it. Our, part of our, our journey is that when Gina started getting her Keytruda treatment, everybody she would meet, she would talk to, every single orderly, every single phlebotomist, every single nurse, anywhere in, on her trip. It's, it's, while she was getting the Keytruda, people would talk to her because they would they remembered what she was like and then they saw her getting better so it would open up these conversations and i would be in the room and i would have to sit and just put my face in my hands every time she would say well i'm on keytruda nobody knew what that was well it's immunotherapy blank stairs is that oh so it's a chemo no it's not a chemo well then they just shut down they didn't even want to know it so I thought the doctors need to educate the hospital or the, the personnel. The doctors don't even seem to know about precision oncology. There's there's very little uh, education about precision oncology going on. And considering the amazing effect it seems to be having, I mean, it, it's, it's such a new sec sector of oncology, and yet the numbers are, are going going up very, very quickly, it seems. Uh, the amount of clinical trials happening means that people don't have to worry about breaking the bank. I mean, there's there seems like such opportunity, and it nobody seems to know about it, and it just boggles my mind. That seems to be the biggest challenge right now, because the most promising treatment is the least known about. 
Well, now it's hooking up with chemotherapy because I think a financial deal was cut there. <laughs> well, I mean, it's the same companies. The pharmaceutical companies are in charge of both chemotherapy and immunotherapy. I, the profit motive is there for them either way. So it just boggles my mind. I don't understand it. Sorry. Back to you. <laughs> no, thank you for sharing. That's um, it's really interesting to hear. And um, I, I think we have a lot of, as you were saying, we have, there's a lot of potential um, with precision oncology, but patients really do trust their doctors. And if doctors aren't aware of these options and aren't able to recommend them to patients who would benefit from from such treatment options, then I think it's really difficult to increase um, the the uptake of precision oncology among patients who would benefit um, if if we're not able to to communicate these options to patients themselves. So um, it's it yeah, seems like. I get I get letters from people whose doctors won't give them immunotherapy because they think it's like the vaccine, the COVID vaccine that it's just hooey. So that's 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 scary. That's scary business. I mean, it just depends on on the doctor. A lot of oncologists, the older ones, are stuck in their way. You use chemotherapy. You use the thing that will most likely give you cancer. And it doesn't make sense. And if you guys take away anything from from talking to me, it's to Google um, the Williams Cancer Institute and Jason Williams. I have been talking to him and his methods are the future and he's amazing. I, I believe he wrote a book about immunotherapy and right now you can download it for free, I think. And it's, it's amazing. It's just, I'll do a spoiler that believes all cancer starts in the gut, but it's not like a Dr. Oz where it's actually like, I was going to say bullshit, but I didn't. Um, it, he backs up what he says and he's, he's curing cancers and actually has studies, not just says it. Because I wrote him asking if he thought that the, the large doses of radiation I had had to get rid of this tumor subsequently followed by Keytruda where it caused my spontaneous remission. And he said, probably. And it's the first time I've got a doctor to do anything other than be like, oh, Gina, you're so silly. And for them to do that when I'm the one that beat the un unbeatable cancer, I'm just like, oh, doctor, you're so silly. So there's just a lot of things going on and nobody wants to be wrong. and. Nobody wants to look stupid, but in doing so, everybody looks a little bit stupid. Just for our listeners, um, could you repeat the name of the doctor um, that you were just talking about? Jason Williams. Okay. Tell him Gina sign. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm like a fangirl for him. I'm the only one that is like fangirling an oncologist. I'm like, ah! So, I mean, he's on... What is he on Instagram? Targeted internet therapy? No, that's not. Uh, well, we'll we'll get that. But you go ahead. I'll Yeah, it's amazing because I started looking up my case and because I never, I never believed lucky. I said something had to have happened. I'm not a miracle. I don't believe in God, so people praying for me could stop. Um, and then I came across Jimmy Carter's case, and we have 
different cases, but almost the same story with the Keytruda and then three months later, a cure. And so I, I looked for the similarity and the similarity was we both had large doses of radiation, almost like the cap on how much radiation you could get, which I don't Followed by um, Immunotherapy for cancer is the Williams Cancer Institute Instagram. So he, I believe, he I believe in. Like I, up until like a few weeks ago, I used to tell my husband that if the cancer ever came back, I wouldn't fight it. And then I read his stuff and I talked to him and I'm like, if I ever even sense cancer again, I am running to this dude because he's putting immunotherapy directly into the tumor. He's just doing amazing things with amazing results. And it's not approved by the FDA, so he can't really advertise. Because he says it would take money to train the doctors, it would take money to get the equipment. The most profound thing he said is that the FDA moves too slow to make anything that he's doing viable within his own lifetime. I mean, yeah. when a doctor will say that, the, when, a, when a doctor doing the work will say, uh, the FDA is, do, is so slow that no change could effectively happen in my lifetime, that's an eye-opener. Yeah, because in, really in the book, he says they sat on Keytruda for 23 years, just not testing it or anything. They just sat there, not healing people. And that is what you say is disgusting. Now the FDA is going to come and kill us. I feel like we really killed the moon. <laughs> we killed the moon. <laughs> so we need a happy questions. Show the dogs. Yeah. Um, it's very exciting to hear how many therapy options are coming forward and um, this new wave of immunotherapy. Um, I'm excited to see the future of it and the effects it will have on the lung cancer community and other cancer communities. Um, but after this thorough journey and um, the wealth of knowledge you've gained, what advice do you have for someone newly diagnosed with lung cancer? Research. Research, then research some more, then read some more, then research your doctors, and then keep researching every day because new things are coming out every day and they're coming out faster then the doctors can keep up with them. And the doctors were already behind because of COVID. And I mean, oncology is just a shit show right now. And stop swearing. Jesus. Oh. It's it, it, <laughs> it, it's one of the scariest things anybody could ever have to deal with. And in that moment, nobody wants to have the responsibility themselves. They want to go to an expert. They want to trust an expert. Please just do something. Please, please, please. Safe. And the, the awful thing that I think we would say to anyone in that position is, you're going to have to take responsibility for this. You're going, the first thing you need to take responsibility for is whose hands you put your life in because you have to essentially interview an oncologist and find out if they are willing to or even know about the things that could truly help you. 
or if you're they're just rubber stamping a treatment they give to everyone because that's just the way it is, quote unquote. And and that sounds cynical, but after everything we've been through, I think I, I don't think it's it's cynical. I think it's alarming but true. And if you are newly diagnosed with something like lung cancer, and and part of the reason I I, I hope we're not coming off arrogant with this, but I, Gina mentioned it a little while ago. Um, almost at the same time, just separated by a few months after her diagnosis, my own mother got her lung cancer diagnosis. And for a while, they were on a parallel track. They were talking, comparing notes, comparing treatments. And my mother didn't make it. My mother went, uh, her, her fight lasted a little over a year, but ultimately she, she didn't make it. And I learned, I mean, in the midst of it all, taking care of Gina while, you know, keeping track of my own mother, it, it, it I, I watched how it happened for us. I watched how it happened for her. And yeah, you, you, you don't know what your doctor knows and your doctor might not know what they don't know. It, it, and it can depend on the city you live in. So just saying, I'll just go to the best doctor in my city. This is the wild west. That might not be enough. You might have to travel. People say, well, that couldn't be. It's the 21st century. I wouldn't have to travel. I'll just go to the best doctor. But you might have to travel. And to, that, that, that puts a lot on somebody who has just had some, so much put on them. And yet, you want the advice. That's the real advice. Yeah, because we, we live in Syracuse, New York, which is for how many times bigger than where I went? I traveled a mile north of here to where my oncologist was, which people thought that's stupid. You have all these really great hospitals Not there. A mile, an hour. hour. Sorry. <laughs> a mile north. A mile north. And no, an hour north. And it was like leaving the metropolis to go to Podunk. But I had a doctor there who she listened to me and she might see this, so I can't say anything bad about her. But no, I I like her. She just because she listened, because when I went and asked her for King Trudis, she said she said no. And she said no very vehemently for 45 minutes. And so he had said before we went, he said, whatever you do, don't freaking make a joke. And then ultimately I did because I was just so tired. I'm like, why, why are you obsessed with letting cancer kill me? It was just because she was saying, I don't want to give you k because I'm afraid of the side effects might kill you. And I'm like, I've been, I'm running three weeks on a two week life sentence. I'm, I'm really not afraid. So that's where it was then. But when I was diagnosed, I Googled and Googled and I never, ever saw anything about immunotherapy. So that's how far things have come since February 2019. Is it at least now it's there, the information is there. So it would have been helpful then. I would have. I would have actually sought out treatment because I knew that chemotherapy wouldn't cure lung cancer, not at my stage. So Oops, went for Jesus. <laughs> Killed the mood again. 
So for someone who has a loved one who was recently diagnosed with lung cancer, um, whether it be a caregiver or just a family member or friend, what advice um, do you have on how best they can support and help them? Research. <laughs> yeah. Research. I mean, there's only so much you can do for someone. Like, I, I have a lot of people that write me on Instagram and they say, well, my spouse is doing this and my spouse is doing that. And I'm like, you have to tell them now is not the time to worry about your boo-boo kitty feelings. Now is the time to save my life and we'll worry about your feelings later. Like, he and I have that because it's not like we're a Hallmark story, but we knew, like, we faced my cancer like a job because it was a job. It wasn't an illness. That's what our job was to do is to save my life so that we could spend the rest of our lives hurting each other's feelings. We do it later and worry about it later. But right now, it's a matter of making sure you get treatment, you get the right treatment. Um, it, it's... It, we're, we're, I mean, as you can tell, we part of the way, the way we cope with everything is making light of things. But um, seriously, it it depends who your loved one is. I mean, obviously, if you're if it's your spouse, your influence is immediate. If if you're a caregiver, your influence is immediate. It's outsized. When she was in a coma, I was her medical proxy. I mean, I, I actually did have things to do with her medical decisions and her treatment. You love that control. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, for example, with my mother, uh, there were just as many times when I felt helpless and would, would be on the phone with her and... Or, you know, if I got to go see her, I would I could tell she was trying to hide information from me. She wasn't being honest with me about how, you know, things, things she had found out about her case. She didn't want to let me know things were going downhill. Early, early on, getting back to the whole crux of what your organization is about, testing. My mother was diagnosed, she was over 50. She did qualify for, you know, it, and she-, she she hadn't smoked in in a long in a, in a long time, but she was she she would have qualified. She was complaining of a cough, and it, it was a cough she'd never had before. And she went to her doctor, and her doctor said, "Oh, it's probably allergies. Here's some Zyrtec or some." He just wrote her prescription. She came back the next month, and he said, "I don't know what to tell you." What? doctor what I mean what I don't know what to tell you she had to come back for three months in a row and the third month she demanded a scan my mother had to demand a scan from her doctor who had tried to brush her off with allergy medication for three months and it shouldn't be that way and if and she had to get scared into it because she had just found out her daughter-in-law had lung cancer so I mean, yeah. so anyway, it the the medical system is run by people, and people are Make fallible, things. and you you just can't assume that the system is set up in any way that is going to efficiently help you. If you aren't taking responsibility for your own health, 
the system is not going to do things you're not doing. And that might hurt people's feelings or scare them, but might keep somebody alive, so. I can see in my speech about the profound lack of common sense. So well, you're, mean, you already I, brought down the room. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Zoom is weird. Give my support pickle. He's <laughs> napping, he's checked out. Uh, if there was one message you would like to give all the listeners today, what would it be? Research. <laughs> research cancer, research can cancer treatments. Don't be afraid that if you do research, you'll get cancer. Don't be afraid. I think people, I beat at people with, with my with yammering on about cancer until they they realize one day they might need to know because I'm not saying that you need to know this today but one day you might need to know and don't try to learn after you're diagnosed or after someone you love is diagnosed because you panic and when you panic you make mistakes and I panicked but I, I didn't do anything I just panicked and was frozen because I had no hope, so I'm like, well, here we go. And um, just, it, it seems like an awfully big thing to have complete ignorance about. It doesn't seem like, oh, I'm going to learn about cancer and I'll never need to know this. I think you will in your life need to know something about it. So I don't understand why people do not. I mean, but, but I said that to my man Drake when he called and he was just a kid. I'm like, why are you doing this? Instead of out blaming your parents for doing you wrong and doing drugs, why are you doing stuff with cancer? <laughs> but now I respect him. So I don't remember what I was talking about. So I'm gonna take a drink and look off to the side. <laughs> but research. Saber Drake. Um, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, but thank you so much, Gina, for taking time out of your day to share your story with us. Um, now I would like to open the floor for our participants to ask you any questions they may have regarding you or your story and if you feel comfortable answering them. So if you guys would like to ask um, Gina or her husband a question, please put it in the chat or uh, feel free to unmute. We received a couple of questions um, direct, directly to us, privately messaged to oh. us. So we can, we'll read them out um, to both of you. One of the questions asks, um, how best can we educate the upcoming generation about lung cancer screening or just lung cancer in general? Uh, lung cancer screening needs to completely be revamped. So, oh, made a lot of strides already. yeah, okay. So then what can we teach them about lung cancer? I mean, I'm not going to use the phrase anybody with lungs because I, that phrase just irritates the crap out of me. Um, I think that future generations, you know, anytime anything seems wrong for a period of time, get it looked at. It's, it's not hard. 
it's not hard to remember that if something's broke get it looked at um there's one thing here if, 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 i don't think we're answering the question great in a, in a really great way but if there's one thing that my awareness has come up about in the past few years radon i mean I'm a grown man in his late 40s and I really only learned about radon a few years ago. People don't know what it is and I mean you you have to get a home inspection when you buy a house and you go why? Well, you know, if you don't talk to the people doing that, you might never understand why radon is uh important and and detrimental and how prevalent it is. Anybody with a basement is at risk for lung cancer. I mean that's really what it comes down to because you think doctors don't know what they're doing all the time. Building contractors? I mean <laughs> it's it's again we're making light of something that that is serious, but it the idea that oh well somebody must have put their signature on a piece of paper so I bet my house is fine. That 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 could kill you. That's it's crazy, but radon is nothing to sleep on. It's definitely like if you don't even know if your house when you're, the last time your house was inspected, radon is just radiation coming out of the ground. And if you have a basement, you have radon in your home, and if you don't know the levels, you should probably get them checked because it's it, it's cute and it's insidious. You don't know it's building up. I've lived in my house for 30 years. I've never had a problem and then suddenly I'm, but that's it. That's the story of radon causing lung cancer. And I would I would if, if I didn't know about it, I'm I don't think I'm a complete dummy. I would imagine that there are tons of people out there who just have no idea. Also, I was thinking as far as COVID in and of itself causing changes in the lungs, that's well, that's the hallmark of what causes cancer. So I just myself, I'm curious about whether that will cause a wave of lung cancer in the future. So I would encourage the future generations to watch with me and not to be as complacent as people have gotten about it's just another flu. Like anything that, that creates a change in the lungs and one just one cell can cause lung cancer. So it's something to be aware of and tell them, don't vape, it looks stupid and it can cause cancer too. Look like a freaking dragon. I think we're time for the next question. <laughs> no, thank you. This was a great discussion. Um, just touching upon radon, um, I think it's very important what you bring up. Radon um, is a radioact radioactive gas given off by soil, rock, and water, and it results from the breakdown of naturally occurring radioactive isotopes in uranium buried deep in the ground. And um, as you have touched upon, there are ways to test um, your house for radon um, if, if that's something that you would like to do. And a typical test is, is very simple and, and inexpensive. The test kits are can be purchased from really any home improvement store or hardware store, and they only cost about twenty to thirty dollars. And it's usually the size of about a hockey puck, um, and it has uh, perforated holes and charcoal inside. And um, you just open it up, uh, leave it in in your house for a couple of days um, in one of the lower level rooms, and then you send it off to a lab for testing. And the EPA actually has a spreadsheet of um, 
uh, with with which like uh, for different counties within the U.S. and it has level the radon levels in those regions. And so I can drop um, that that spreadsheet in the chat for anyone who wants to see whether their their location is might be at higher risk for more radon exposure than maybe other locations. So. Um, but thank you for bringing that up. And then if for anyone who wants to learn more, um, I think this spreadsheet is a good place to, to start. And just uh, leading into the next Q&A question, um, what do you hope to see accomplished within the lung cancer field in the next five to 10 years? More unity. Um, there's such a divide between the never smokers and the smokers, it's the stars on Mars and the stars and it's ultimately, I see it doing, I see it as detrimental to lung cancer because there's fighting in and amongst the, the lung cancer community and it's just, the point is eradicate lung cancer. Did you smoke? Did you not smoke? It doesn't matter. I mean, I, there's no one left that knows you, smoking causes lung cancer. So once we got beyond that, like, I just see a lot of, I don't know how to describe it. There is a lot of people that have never smoked feel like they shouldn't have gotten lung cancer. And if the phrase, you only need lungs, is to be correct, that attitude needs to stop. It's, it's not just about infighting amongst uh, survivors, too. I mean, the stigma, is, it goes back to her, uh, her, her stay in the ICU. When she was in her induced coma and doctors were asking me about her history, you know, it was the same questions all the time. But then when the rotation happened the first time and a new set of doctors came in, asked me, has she smoked? Said, yeah, she used to be a smoker. She, she smoked for about 20 years. And immediately, just the shrugs. These professional people who a, min a minute ago, you, they could have been stock photos of professional doctors. They just sort of slumped and went, huh? what are you going to do? Like They look at each other, well, of course. I mean, what did she expect? I mean, and didn't even try to hide it. Like the, the, the difference in the lack of professionalism suddenly went like, oh, so my attitude about saving this patient's life has changed because you answered a question. It's so, a stigma was- Yeah, it, it, I can see why yeah. the, the people that didn't smoke are getting their attitude from, but they're getting it from the people that treat people that did smoke like crap. I mean, but I'm not going to say I didn't smoke. I was a smoker. I wasn't apologetic about it. And I wasn't after I got lung cancer because I knew she's not a smoker anymore. <laughs> I quit. <laughs> um, I wasn't going to, to cry about an effect I knew was a possibility. Now, that I know what it smells like, I am horrified and embarrassed. But then I'd smoked since I was 16 years old. I had no clue. I just, I'm a very nervous person. It was a nervous habit. <laughs> Everybody forgives you. And that's 
Well, I still think that the vaping gave me cancer, but we'll get to that next episode. <laughs> Questions? It's a big picture of Sid. Hey, Sid. <laughs> You're so skinny. <laughs> Hi, we just got another question from uh, Saeed. Uh, Saeed. My bad. Uh, like she, you're not the first. Don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, she asked, uh, do you think there's any cure for the medical system in this country other than up, uh, upcoupling the profit motive for pharma and hospital system favoring one treatment over another? Oh, Saeed, I shouldn't have liked <laughs> the good questions. I mean, the system, there needs to be checks and balances that are actually checked and balanced. And that's just not happening right now. I mean, starting with the hospitals say they didn't lose money during COVID, but they didn't. They say they're not trying to make up for that money, but there are. They say there's a nursing shortage, but there isn't. They're just, I mean, if you talk to nurses, they will talk about the fact that they're short-staffed because the hospital short-staffed because the hospital can make money doing that. Um, But to go back to money for prescriptions, I was reading about a a new chemotherapy for new cancer that they were gonna cost, it was gonna cost $1.25 million per year. And I'm like, how do you justify that and and sleep at night and like well that's it costs what it costs that's that's not the truth with with medicine it doesn't i think k truth is what like it's on sale it's eighteen thousand a bag and then it can go up to like twenty six thousand per bag and so when i tell people and it's not going to answer to this question but she can yell me later um is to remember that when you go to the doctor and you do all this stuff, you're, you're paying for it. So when you go to the doctor, that's someone that you're paying, like a plumber. Okay. So if he doesn't fix your pipes, just go someplace else. But the same thing with the medicine, ask for what you want. And to fix medicine, it would need everybody to stop fighting. And that's not going to happen because people like being divided about everything. And until who are making the real money on this, which that goes up, starting with the doctors, going up to the hospitals, going up to the insurance, going up to the men that we don't know that are making the real money until they are held in check. We're just all sort of pawns. We'll get the medicine that they deem we can have and we'll pay whatever they think they can get for it. and. It all sucks. Yeah, they don't care who they kill in the meantime. No. And on a personal note, I love you two people and I'm so happy to see your faces. It's been too long. (laughs) Too damn long. (laughs) Don't swear. (laughs) Too fucking long. Okay. I'll let other people ask questions now. I'll go back and mute. Uh, Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. 
Okay. Um, it looks like we haven't received any more questions, um, but thank you for sharing a wealth of your knowledge and all of um, immunotherapy and, you know, research. It's great to hear all this advice you're giving. So thank you so much, uh, Gina, for your willingness to share your story and perspective on- We're not questions. over, are we? You're still going to call and write and oh stuff. You're great. Um, those are all the questions we currently have for you. Um, but we appreciate the work that you're doing to help raise awareness about lung cancer and, you know, the difficulties you faced in the healthcare community. And um, thank you, everyone, for joining our podcast. Uh, please keep an eye out for our upcoming podcasts and events, which will be listed on our website, www.alc.org. We also encourage you to join our monthly newsletter, where we share updates on upcoming projects within our organization. Please fill out the form in the chat if you'd like to be added to our mailing list. And before we end this, we also like to offer a brochure highlighting some key information about lung cancer and lung cancer screening. If you find this helpful or know of anyone who might benefit from the information included in the brochure, feel free to share it. Um, again, thank you, everyone, and have a great night. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for what you guys are doing. The lung cancer. I was going somewhere with that, I know. <laughs> Thank you so much, Gina, um, for taking the time to be here with us. We learned a lot. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Bye.